0: Welcome to our special series on Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter was founded in 2013 in response to the acquittal of Trayvon Martin's murderer. And the movement has recently seen worldwide protests in response to the death of George Floyd. In this series, we meet Caribbean medical students from various schools and discuss their involvement with the movement and tips for how to address racial inequalities as a medical student. Hello from the sunny beaches of St. Kitts and Nevis. Welcome to Dextrocardia, your one-stop-shop podcast for everything related to life as a Caribbean medical student. I'm your host, Nihal Satyadev, a second-year medical student at the University of Medicine and Health Sciences. Disclaimer, the opinions expressed by guests of this podcast do not reflect the opinions or views of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's dive in. So welcome to our first episode of our Black Lives Matter series where uh, we are uh, talking with various Caribbean medical students and the work that they're doing to progress the movement. So today we're here with actually one of my really good friends, Nahu, who's in my class and um, we first met at the beginning of medical school last year. Um, So Nahu, welcome to the podcast. Tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Hey, Nihal. Uh, thanks for having me on. A uh, pleasure, as always, to be speaking with you. Uh, but yeah, so a little bit of background information on me. I was born in Boston but grew up in Northern Virginia, just outside in the suburbs of D.C. Uh, I tell people my school, my high school was Hapeville secondary which, uh, funny enough, was in that movie, Remember the Titans, uh, which has something to do about racial integration of Virginia's public schools and how my school got their butt kicked by the Titans the first game. Uh, so yeah, I went to Virginia Tech for undergraduate, uh, got my degree in biochemistry, and I've worked in the ER for a couple of years before finally going uh, to Caribbean School and meeting you. And here we are today. Uh, passions about me, I'd probably say would be running, uh, finance, um, and I'm a big fan of social studies.
0: Very cool. Um, so in regards to everything that's been uh, going on in the world right now, especially in regards to um, the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, would love to hear kind of when you first got involved with the movement and what, what was the uh, inflection point at which you decided that it was time for you to uh, speak out?
1: Well, uh, I just started um, really embracing the Black Lives Matter movement. This has been something that's been, I guess, building inside my head for, since the- first incident that we saw with uh, Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman in 2013. And I think just, it's been a rolling stone since that um, moment. After that, we had the what, um, the Ferguson riots in 2014. And I remember being abroad at the time in Sweden. And a lot of my relatives asked me, you know, is this America? Is this the country that you live in that you guys claim is the best in the world? And um, it just really gets you thinking, yeah, are we targeted people? Uh, so. To answer the question, fast forwarding now, um, I, I could no longer just sit around and just do nothing or just simply post things on social media following the George Floyd murder and the Breonna Taylor murder. Um, there's just something about seeing both characters involved in the situation, staring at the camera at the same time. And it's sort of just, like I, like I said, I'm a big fan of history, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it often rhymes. And it sort of looked like the uh, Eric Garner murder in New York where he was selling uh, single cigarettes outside and was uh, sort of just got flashbacks from that. And I said, you know, no, enough is enough. Um, corona or no Corona, I have to go out and make sure that we got to put an end to this. So I think recently uh, is when I started standing up and making a change. So to really stand up and putting myself out there for the Black Lives Matter movement.
0: Um, So you alluded to a number of things, uh, especially in regards to your time in Sweden, Um, and I think one of the things we're seeing, especially right now, is that this is a very um, international movement. Um, So how do you see the global impact that this movement um, will be making?
1: Um, So this is, racism is a a worldwide phenomenon. I think it's colorism can be found in, um, you know, anywhere from the East, starting with India, uh, even in America, Um, the Western powers are starting to come to terms or being forcefully come to terms to sort of look back in their past and sort of reflect on the atrocities and the, I guess, institutionalization of those prior times in our current society. And this is not only occurring in the US, but around the world, especially in France, where a lot of African and Arab Uh, protesters are out there complaining against police brutality. So this is not just something US-centered, but as leaders of the West, we will lead the charge in this situation. So I am happy to see it um, the Black Lives Matter movement uh, become a global-wide phenomenon. Now we just need to make sure that we can, in a sense, execute uh, and cash out those political chips.
0: Yeah. So I think you allude perfectly to what I want to discuss next is kind of what specifically are you doing? Obviously right now you're in medical school, you're taking classes, you have <clears throat> a full load of work. And so what specifically are you doing outside of classes? Um, and how are you kind of balancing all of that with, uh, with schoolwork as well?
1: Um. Schoolwork should always take priority, uh, but following the immediate death of George Floyd and the protests in DC, um, it actually became a secondary issue because yes, I'm going to become a physician, but at the end of the day, I am a black man. And I felt the need to uh, express and show uh, my civil rights and demanding a change with protesting. Um, So that was one way uh, for me getting my voice heard, uh, going out there, marching. Uh, just as many others whom have marched before me in the history of the United States, uh, going out in front of the White House, demanding change from our president, uh, marching down towards Capitol Hill, demanding change from Congress, uh, and even walking by the Lincoln Memorial and sort of just fermenting the same, um, the same feeling and aura that was experienced, what, 60 years ago when Martin Luther King gave his famous I Have a Dream speech, now, don't get me wrong, we didn't have hundreds of thousands, but there were thousands, you know, almost 10,000 people there. So uh, the, the fervor is there in the air. Um, I don't mean to get a bit too sidetracked on that, but the protesting was a big part of it. As, outside of that, as a medical student, uh, just having opening Q&A discussions uh, with fellow future healthcare care providers, um, sharing content amongst each other on ways to improve uh, racial bias or discrimination, that we may have um, and making sure it 's always an open channel, this is uh, something that didn 't start before us and didn't end before us, so it 's just a matter of continuing to remind people that um, and always showing some support for one another
0: yeah, no that's a really good point, and I love that you're kind of <laughs> speaking to uh, the fact that this isn 't necessarily an isolated issue only in terms of police brutality, right we do see. Major racial disparities in healthcare. So, what what do you kind of see as some of the biggest uh, disparities, uh, racial disparities in healthcare? Uh, and you know, outside of you know conversation, uh, how do you think we should be thinking about them as medical students to uh, make sure that when we're physicians, we're better, uh, we're doing our part to address those.
1: Sure. Uh, well. Like I said earlier, I'd worked in the ER for a couple of years as a medical scribe. So I, um, in a short, in short, uh, shadowed physicians around as they saw patients and sort of documented their electrical ch- electronic charts. Um, and you notice just the simple things. There were a lot of studies that have come out in medicine that showed the way that pain is perceived amongst different groups of races, where black Americans were seen to perceive to have higher levels of pain tolerance than white Americans. And that thus would lead to a change in uh, medical prescription uh, decision making, like where opioids were prescribed a lot less for African Americans as compared to white Americans, which which is another story coincidentally led to or uh, unfortunately led to the uh, opioid epidemic that we have right now in the United States. Um, back to that point, that's an example right there of racial disparity that we've seen um, and it's on us as future healthcare providers to sort of try and lead the way to change that this is it the changes need to the systemic changes need to begin at the top, and as future physicians, we will be at the top of the healthcare uh, pyramid. Uh, it starts with us we need to start taking more classes. there needs to be an emphasis on uh, proper racial discrimination uh, identifiers uh, and ways to tackle those solutions, classes for that continuing education courses that involve these things once we've, once we've become board certified physicians um, These are just the little things that uh, I do believe will uh, lead to powerful change.
0: Yeah, so let's uh, discuss a little bit more in terms of education because I think that's really powerful, right? Ultimately, we can't um, address any of those uh, racial disparities unless we have a good understanding of what they are to begin with. So uh, one of the things that I always hear is, and we do see in our curriculum, is there's so much to learn in medical school. Uh, We're always trying to cram as much knowledge into as short of a period as possible. Um, Mm -hmm. So given that, when do you think is the opportune time um, to integrate uh, this sort of education? Um, And do you think it's something that is better handled at a school-by-school level or better handled um, on a more uh, systemic, um, you know, AAMC, uh, USMLE kind of level?
1: Wow, that's a very great question, Nihal. Um, well, I'd probably have to say the um, the right way to go about it would be through the USMLE. In order to become a proper physician, you have to take certain exams, right? Step one, basic sciences. step two, clinical skills, and then, you know, complete your boards following residency. But if we were to incorporate uh, questions or methods of the um, minimizing that racial gap and uh, discrepancy in our healthcare. Um, If we can sort of find ways to sort of apply that and put them into our uh, sort of checklist exams, uh, I think that's a better way to do it than on a uh, school-by-school basis where the curriculum may be skewed for one professor's viewpoint or someone else's, maybe depends on the demographics. There's a uniform exam that we all take, which we do, um, and uh, changes were applied to there. I think that we'd see more bang for our buck that way.
0: Yeah. I mean, I totally agree with you. I think, um, you're absolutely right. Like ultimately, uh, there's so much, we have to digress through, um, in terms of information. And the one thing that we're always trying to do as a back burner is let's focus on what's on the step. Let's focus on what's on step one. Let's focus on what will be like tested on step two CS, because we know those are the most important things. And as you said, if this is not something that we are tested on that is integrated as required curriculum, it, to, at least to me, and, you know, maybe you agree with me, it kind of seems like we're almost saying this is not an important part of your medical education. Um, and so uh, I totally agree that in, in that regard, the change definitely has to come from a systemic level. Um, and as you said, unless physicians across the board are, uh, given access and required to go through this information, um, it's gonna be a little bit harder to uh, make the change. Um, but there has been a lot of change, right, overall in the last, uh, even in the last few weeks. Um, so what, uh, what gives you the most hope in the progress that um, Black Lives Matter is making um, in the recent past? And um, what kind of changes are you uh, really hoping happen um, in the next year or so to come?
1: Sure. Well, let's just go ahead and start with some of the obvious ones. Uh, the obvious ones being that the police officers were imme- immediately fired and uh, uh, charges were pressed on them. Uh, this is something that we typically hadn't seen uh, during the earlier years of the Black Lives Matter movement. Like I said, those were the Eric Garner cases, uh, Trayvon Martin, so on and so forth. In fact, they were rehired either by the same uh, police department or another one. Uh, so seeing uh, police actually being uh, charged and fired, um, now, more importantly, though, is seeing public and private sector leaders not just paying lip service to the movement, seeing private sector leaders, you know, such as Tim Cook, Mark Zimmerman, uh, the Snapchat CEO, you know, stepping out into the public eye and saying, you know, we need to lead the charge for more uh, diversity uh, in our C-suite uh, departments. Now, did you know, Nehal, that there have only been 18 black CEOs in the Fortune 500 since 1999? Only 18. When the, when the population of Black Americans is 13.4%. So these are, this is a systemic thing that we need to see change and, um, you know, sort of seeing the private sector stepping out, putting their money where their mouth is, I I believe will lead to some change. Now, on the public side of things, uh, this is where it gets stickier. uh, As, like I said, we are fighting institutionalized racism. Uh, These institutions need to change themselves. And I think we both know how hard that is for government to self-regulate. Uh, so I know Donald Trump had recently passed an executive order, but we'd like to see uh, some strict rule enforcement changes being made. And I know some headways being made with that. Uh, to a representative, excuse me, a Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, uh, the only black uh, Republican senator since the 1870s in the South, uh, is leading the charge for that. Um, so I'm hoping to see some good changes on criminal justice reform. And I want to put on a side note, though I don't believe in the um, the defund police movement, I think it just goes to show the power of the people and that at the end of the day, they serve us. And if we feel that we truly aren't being protected by those that serve us, these anointed figures of authority, then at the end of the day, we will use the power that we have as the people and um, you know, threaten to take your purse unless reforms are being made. So I do like where it is. I don't support that, but I do like uh, the direction it's pulling um, the other side
0: yeah absolutely i mean that's uh it's a very great point that ultimately um you know the checks and balances in regards to public service have to be um on the side of the people um so that's i totally agree with you on that um so just to um wrap things off i would love to kind of hear um a little bit historical take since you're a history buff um and uh, which uh, who would you say is your favorite civil rights leader? And uh, why do they um,
1: inspire you? Oh, man, thank you for the good question. Um, there's actually a couple I'd like to pay homage to, uh, starting up with the obvious Martin Luther King Jr., uh, who essentially took the mantle from Gandhi and becoming the beacon of uh, peaceful protesting in the 20th century. Uh, Nelson Mandela, you know, he spent 27 years in prison as a political prisoner, but his spirit never waned uh, for apartheid to end in South Africa. Uh, James Baldwin uh, was, I felt, a bit uh, uh, underrated. people didn't know about him as much as the others, but he was the poetic embodiment of the civil rights movement here in the '60s. And you know, not only civil rights for uh, uh, black Americans, but also civil rights for gays as well. Um, I believe he's one of the few open African-American uh, gay figures in that era. Um, and he's been well-regarded during that time and after. So that says a lot about him. Uh, but to me, the most fascinating civil rights leader was Malcolm X. Um, I found it odd how he wasn't really taught too much in his three books. Uh, but it makes sense. You know, early on in his uh, career as a civil rights leader, he, um, uh, he preached separation of black and whites, uh, preached violence, if need be. Uh, but that all changed once he uh, went on his Hajj or his pilgrimage to Mecca. Uh, where it sort of behooved Malcolm X to see you know, people of all different ethnicities, different races, backgrounds, all treating each other as equals uh, and brothers, uh, as fellow Muslim brothers. Uh, so that's what I appreciate his story the most, because once he saw that there was the possibility of uh, integration is the best way, he sort of came back and became a change man. And um, you know, unfortunately, he paid the ultimate price for it. Yeah, that's true. I mean, some of the
0: greatest leaders uh, do end up, um, leading with their life. So, um, thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you for sharing your time here. Um, and, uh, if anyone wants to contact, uh, the podcast and has any recommendations for episodes or want to share the work that they're doing, uh, you can reach us at dextracardia.podcast at gmail.com. Uh, thanks so much, Nahu.
1: Yeah. Thanks so much again, Nihol.